Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Now this summer, we've been reading through the book of Genesis with particular attention to the life of Abraham. In the beginning of July, Father Scott preached on Abraham's heroic faith as he followed God's will to leave his homeland and to become a great nation through which all people will be blessed. A journey which begins, but not without a few epic mishaps and failures. We heard the story of the way of nature. Sarah mistreating her servant Hagar and sending her into the wilderness to die. We heard the story of the way of grace in which the angel of the Lord finds Hagar and tenderly meets her needs. Last week, Jesse Parsons spoke on the tension between seeking justice and showing mercy. Abraham, who advocates on behalf of the notoriously evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, their lack of hospitality, immorality, violence, and injustice. This morning, we turn to the story that's called The Binding of Isaac perhaps the most well-known story in the Abrahamic cycle in Genesis. This story is very important to Christians. In Romans 4, St. Paul uses this story to explain how Abraham was justified by faith and not works. In Hebrews chapter 11, the binding of Isaac takes central stage when describing Abraham as a hero of faith. And as Anglican Christians, we recognize the importance of the binding of Isaac in our worship. If we attend church regularly, we would hear this story in the liturgy about five times every three years, usually during Lent or the Easter Vigil. Now, I must admit, different parts of the story caught my attention at different times of my life. When I was a kid, a child, I looked at Abraham as a kind of MacGyver. You know MacGyver, the central character of the TV series that bears his name, who finds ways out of impossible life-threatening situations, usually with a Swiss army knife and duct tape. And I remember as a kid hearing about Abraham looking up and seeing a ram caught in a thicket. And in my little boy mind, I'm thinking, ah, here's an Old Testament hero who knows how to get out of bad situations. I don't think that was the lesson my Sunday school teacher was trying to teach. (laughs) As a philosophy major, my attention turned to ethics and what God asked Abraham to do, to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Can God command the taking of an innocent human life? How does this story impact our understanding of the relationship between God and divine goodness? Can God command anything to be right? And after marrying Anne and being blessed with three boys, it was the first part of the verse, too, that caught my attention. Take your son your only son, the son whom you love. As a dad, I thought, what 
was going through Abraham's mind. How do we approach the binding of Isaac? A Bible story that has a few sharp edges. Let us pray. Holy and gracious Heavenly Father, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction. Send forth your Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts as we meditate on the story of Abraham and what it means to have faith in you in times of great trial. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. A few preliminary comments are in order. First, I'm not going to speak directly to the ethical issue that this passage raises in moral theology. To do so requires a lot of work. Distinguishing between divine command theory, natural law theory, rule-based ethics, virtue-based ethics, progressive revelation, the relationship of God's foreknowledge to God's commands. And we just don't have time for that. (laughs) And you're probably breathing a sigh of relief. As one who has taught moral theology to seminarians, I'm interested in these issues. But catch me after our service. (laughs) And for reasons that I'll explain later, I don't think this passage is chiefly about ethics. Second preliminary point. There's considerable cultural and historical distance between this story and our society today. Child sacrifice was practiced throughout Abraham's world, in Canaanite religion, in Moab, Phoenicia. A few centuries later, we find Greek and Roman societies practicing infanticide. And there's good archaeological evidence that these practices were present in the Americas too. It is also very clear that later in Scripture, this practice is explicitly prohibited. Leviticus 18.21, you shall not give any of your children to devote them by fire to Moloch. In fact, the early Christian church was known for the regard it gave to its children. Even in the 19th century, Karl Marx, who is very hostile to much of Christianity, is reputed to have said that despite his criticisms of Christianity... He praised it, saying, at least it taught cultures, wherever it was spread, to love their children. So to return to the story, if in Abraham's time the practice was common, what in this story would have have caught this culture's attention? What may have been so striking to them is not what was going to happen to Isaac, but what Isaac represents to Abraham, what God was asking Abraham to give up. Abraham's peers would see Isaac as representing Abraham's future. Isaac is the link between Abraham and Abraham becoming a great nation. 
After the birth of Isaac, it seems that Abraham has finally made it. He's prosperous. His lands are relatively secure. He has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. When Isaac is weaned in Genesis 20, and the two, the two boys are actually playing together. His two sons from two different mothers are getting along. In one's mind, one might be tempted to think that his life is now vindicated. He's become the, the successful patriarch as he had promised. And then it becomes to unravel. Sarah continues to be upset with Hagar, so Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert. And in a story that parallels much of our text today, the angel of the Lord sees Hagar and her son, who have been put out to die, graciously provides a stream of water for them, and then blesses Ishmael. So when we turn to the binding of Isaac, we find it to be the climax of all these stories about Abraham. Note that after this event, Scripture does not record any more encounters between God and Abraham. So our orientation to this Bible story, we'll take this as a departure point. The text is not primarily about ethics, but it's about what Isaac represents to Abraham. What happens to Isaac is that he's the means by which a very important theological question is going to be posed to Abraham. The biblical text focuses its attention on Abraham and Abraham's response. Notice how God speaks in verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now that Abraham has a son, just where does Abraham place his faith? Do the promises of God hinge on Isaac or not? Even if God should take back Isaac, can Abraham still trust God to fulfill what he has promised to Abraham? Would God raise Isaac back to life? Does Abraham have faith in God? Or is his faith in the legacy that he hopes will come through his son? God is testing Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith is clearly being tested by God, and there are important differences between being tested and being tempted. God isn't tempting Abraham to do evil. That would be making evil to be attractive, which would entice a person to fall. Scripture is clear. God doesn't tempt. Instead, God tests Abraham as to his character to reveal to Abraham and to others as to what is really in his heart. How much faith does he really have in God? We find examples of divine testing throughout Scripture. For example, in Job. Job's faith was tested in a painful way. After he lost his family, his property, and his health, Yet he doesn't curse God, but remains faithful through it all. However, God also tests us with good things. In Jesus' parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, God tests a rich man in regards to the man's covetousness. 
Now, covetousness is a spiritual disease in which a person is inordinately attracted to material things. It might make you a really, really good consumer, but from a Christian perspective, it'll kill your soul. What does this man do when God tests him with prosperity? The rich man builds bigger barns and congratulates himself. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry, because now he knows he has goods set up for the future. And after this testing, God calls him a fool. He laid up treasures for himself and was not rich towards God. Testing reveals character. Testing reveals what is really inside a person's heart. It's an external manifestation of a person's inner spiritual faith. And now what is faith? Well, too often we hear the juxtaposition of faith with knowledge, which makes faith as a kind of, well, religious opinion that some people have that has nothing to do with knowledge. As one of my college students puts it, faith is believing in something you don't know whether or not it's really true. I think that contrasting faith with knowledge in this way really misunderstands what faith is. Hebrews 11 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Faith is a kind of assurance. In fact, both faith and knowledge are a kind of assurance. I can assure you that I know there's a farmer's market in the parking lot outside because I saw it all set up when I walked into church this morning. But what makes faith different from knowledge is that the assurance of faith is based on trust. I can assure you that I'm currently healthy because of what my physician told me when I had my last physical. I know I am healthy. I trust my physician. We've been through a lot together and I rely on his good judgment. I know that I'm healthy, not because of any medical knowledge that I have or my ability to Google is just like really incredible. I know I am healthy because I trust my doctor. Faith in God is an assurance based on trust. But I'm not trusting something I can see like my physician, but something I cannot see which is what Hebrews is talking about. We have faith in God, whom we worship in spirit. We trust God's word as we find it in Holy Scripture. We have faith that the Holy Spirit has led the church throughout the last two millennia and will continue to lead the church in the present age and the age to come. Faith is a knowing based on trust. So the issue in our Bible story this morning is, what would happen if Abraham's faith were put to the ultimate test. Now, when God speaks to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 22, God doesn't give Abraham an explanation as to what he's up to. God doesn't tell Abraham what he proposes to accomplish. God's command is three simple verbs. Take your son, go to Mount Moriah, and sacrifice him there. Abraham does not barter with God. God miraculously brought about the birth of Isaac, and now God is asking for Isaac to be returned. Instead, early, 
the next morning, Abraham sets out with Isaac and two young men on the three-day journey to Mount Moriah. The text of Genesis does not give any indication as what was going through Abraham's mind as the small party traveled. However, before ascending the mountain with Isaac, he tells the young men who stay at the bottom, and I take this to be the key passage in the story. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. In many translations, the implied we in the last phrase is made explicit. We will go over there and worship and we will come again to you. This is a powerful statement of Abraham's faith. When St. Paul reflects on Abraham's faith in Romans 4, he says that Abraham had faith in God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It was this faith in God that was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness, not for any of the works that he had done. Giving life to the dead means, in part, trusting the goodness of God. St. Paul says that Abraham and Sarah's body were as good as dead. But Abraham trusted in God that even in his old body, in their old bodies, God could issue life from them. Abraham was to be a father of many nations through his offspring with Sarah. Calling into existence the things that do not exist means trusting in God's ultimate sovereignty over creation. Given their age, it makes no sense at all to think that Abraham and Sarah would ever have children. But if God can create life out of nothing as we find in Genesis chapter 1. Is it not out of the realm of possibility that God can bring into existence new life from very old life? Or perhaps even bring Isaac back to life? This is why St. Paul says that the story points to the cross. It is through Christ's death on the cross that we have eternal life. Through the cross, reconciliation between God and human beings is now possible, something that would have been impossible to do by ourselves. By faith, we have new life in Christ. To return to Abraham, Abraham says, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. Abraham's faith is in God. He trusts God such that he is certain that they both will return. How exactly will God do this? Abraham doesn't know. But he trusts God. Even out of impossible situations, God can bring forth his will. And on the mountaintop, when the test was at its apex, the Spirit of the Lord calls out to Abraham not to sacrifice his son. But Abraham demonstrated that he did have faith, and he was blessed for it. The angel of the Lord said, I solemnly swear by my own name, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I indeed will bless you. 
multiply your descendants. They'll take possession of the strongholds of the enemy because you have obeyed me. All the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using the names of your descendants. As we reflect upon the binding of Isaac, we can make a few observations. The first is that testing from God involves calling into question that may be placed between ourselves and God. And this something can be most anything. When goods are not properly arranged in our lives, they are blessings. Or when when the goods are, are properly arranged in our lives, they are blessings. When they're not, they become idols. Messy rooms are not filled with bad things. Usually they're filled with good things, just in the wrong places. Take a look where I store books all over my house. When our lives are a spiritual mess, it's because the items in our lives are out of place. As we say in our confession, we are either not loving God with our whole heart or we are not loving our neighbors as ourselves. When God tests us, it's often about one of these goods getting between us and God. A second thing is that we know we will be tested in life. It's not a question of whether I'll be tested, but when. God is not out to take away the goods we enjoy in life, but God is interested in discerning the extent to which these goods might get in the way of us trusting him. Suppose we are tested with good things. Suppose the future leads to greater financial success. Will this make me a more generous person? If God grants me health and leisure, does this increase my Christian involvement in a hurting world? A world that is so desperate to feel the love of Christ? Or suppose we're tested by hardship, perhaps declining health, financial uncertainty, failed relationships, dysfunctional families, social and cultural chaos, even pandemic. In difficult times, will my hope be grounded in a God who can give life to the dead and can call into existence the things that do not exist? We don't know God's timing when we go through hardship, how long it will last. But we do know that as we walk through these shadows, these valleys of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear evil. For thou, our Lord, is with us. The last thing about testing is that sometimes we will fail the test. In the stories about Abraham, we heard numerous accounts where he had failed, such as trying to save his own life by passing off his wife as his sister or designating Eliezer to be his son so that he would be his heir. His failures are part of his stories too. But that's not where the story ends for Abraham. And even in the New Testament, one of the biggest fails is Peter denying Christ. Yet our loving God is a God of second, third, and even more chances. 
God did not give up on Abraham on those occasions when he failed. Jesus did not give up on Peter after Peter denies him. And truth be told, if we feel that we have sometimes failed in God's tests, be, sh be sure that God has not given up on us. God loves us and cares for us and will meet us again. The story of Abraham teaches us that the appropriate response to testing by God is faith. Testing does build character. It builds faith. It points to one's relationship with God. And as I was reflecting on this topic, I was reminded of a song written by Andre Crouch, an African-American composer who was considered to be the father of modern gospel music and wrote for uh, Disney as well. Incredibly talented. Several of his songs have become classic, and his influence on church music today is extensive. You could trace that influence all the way here. Although he experienced his share of trials in his life, in the end, he was able to give thanks to God for the trials that he went through. He sings, I thank God for the mountains. I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through. For if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all, through it all, I have learned to trust in Jesus. I have learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all. I've learned to depend on his word. If you get a chance this week, check this song out. Any version he sings, especially with a full gospel choir, is worth it. When we are tested by our Heavenly Father, may the Holy Spirit put this song in our heart as we trust Jesus 